Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You tell anyone who'll listen about their great service. But we're the only ones who'll reward them for it. It's the Small Business Awards with Softline Pastel. Small Business, Big Rewards. Get your nominations in now. Your family, your community, your country, your responsibility. Be the best citizen you can be. Find the Bill of Rights on leadersay.co.za. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. Hello, Chris. Good morning. Lovely to chat to you. I have, a, I have a question about the best, the, the most effective way to calm yourself down when you are about, about to get into a rage. We've been talking about road rage and there are people who are SMSing that they can't control themselves. There's just this heat that overwhelms them with a, when another driver is behaving like a pig on the road. What's the best thing to do? Is there a scientific method for just calming uh, I, yourself down. I am the worst person to ask <laughs> because my wife is always telling me to not get so worked up. What is it about being in the car? And, you know, if you were to have a conversation with the person that we're getting really riled up about in the other car, you would just have a perfectly reasonable conversation and, and conclude they were a very nice person. Yes. So what is it about being behind that steering wheel that just turns me and I'm sure many other people into a complete raging ball of pent-up energy with very high blood pressure? I wish <laughs> I knew the answer. You sound worked <laughs> up already. Okay, count to ten. That's my answer. <laughs> yeah, deep breath. I would say close your eyes and count to 10, but that's probably a bad idea while driving, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Listen to some classical music or Nina Simone. That, that's, that could calm anybody down. Well, tune in to the, the Naked Scientists on uh, Talk Radio 702 or 567 Cape Talk. That usually has a very soothing effect. You I see, reckon. you do have the answer. Okay, Chris. <laughs> let's talk about climate change driving animals uphill. Yeah, um, This is an interesting story that caught my eye this week. It's actually by researchers here in the UK. It's a guy called Chris Thomas, who is based at York University. And they were eager to arrive at an answer to a question that's been circulating for quite some time, actually, which is that researchers looking at various species around the world have started to notice that some species have begun to move away from the equator. Mm -hmm. And they've also begun to move upwards in terms of elevation above the ground in order to get to colder temperatures because their body is optimized and their niche, their environmental niche is optimized for lower temperatures. And as global temperatures rise with climate change, for example, because there has been a steady warming of the earth in recent decades, Mm -hmm. they're arguing that you see these animals migrating in response to that. But it was never actually clear whether this was a real effect or a generalizable effect across many species or just a handful. And therefore the scientific robustness of that conclusion was in some doubt. Certainly its scale wasn't known. And so what Chris Thomas and his colleagues are publishing in the journal Science this week is a very big study called a meta-analysis where they take lots and lots of previously published studies, unite them under one big study umbrella, 
And this means you get very big numbers to play with, which means you can iron out the statistical noise. And by looking at more than 2,000 species that all these little studies themselves looked at, in terms of both distance from the equator with time that animal groups have moved, and also height above the ground, they've reached some really quite striking conclusions, which is that over or per decade, your average animal species has moved more than 11 metres upwards above the ground in terms of its host range, and more than 16.9 kilometres away from the equator in terms of its host range. Now, that's an average, of course. And to cross-check the data, they then went to other places on the surface of the Earth, Mm -hmm. further from the equator, where the change in temperature per decade had been slightly different, and asked, have the animals there moved by a proportionally greater or lesser amount? And the answer is there was a really strong correlation. So what they're saying is that there does appear to be this quite strong, in fact much stronger than ever detected before, signal that animals are migrating in response to global climate change. But it's not totally general because about 25% of the species bucked the trend or moved in the opposite direction. But then that's not so surprising because if you move large numbers of species from one place to another, Mm -hmm. this does change the environment slightly where they were before, meaning that the other animals may now be able to expand their territory slightly in order to compensate for the stresses of climate change. And so they don't need necessarily to move. Um, And a really quite nice example of this actually happening is a, a creature called the midwife toad which is an endangered species of toad, which is being plagued by a fungus called a citrid fungus. Mm -hmm. And people have found that these toads are moving to progressively higher uh, altitudes because the fungus cannot persist at these higher altitudes because it's too cold. And so this appears to be uh, mirroring what we're seeing more generally with these other animals. Mm -hmm. Very interesting indeed. Here's something else, uh, Chris. I thought that we were meant to dispose of old drugs, but scientists have developed very interesting techniques to use old drugs to treat existing diseases. Well, it's not so much old drugs as drugs that have been in existence for a long time and drugs that we've been using for one particular disease. And what scientists are asking is, are there other diseases that that could be completely different that these old drugs that are already on the market could also treat? And I guess this paper gets the medal for um, most elegant piece of simple research this week. It's a paper by a guy called Joel Dudley and his colleagues. They're at Stanford in America, and it's in Science Translational Medicine, and it's really clever. What they did was to say, well, look, there are lots of studies that have been done around the world on various diseases, and those studies have looked at what those diseases do to the expression of genes in different tissues. So when you have a certain disease affecting a certain tissue, if you study that tissue, you find that some genes have been turned on and other genes have been turned off and by a certain amount. So they said, okay, if we take that sort of genetic fingerprint for a certain disease and we then ask, are there any drugs for which we also know the genetic fingerprint? In other words, when you take this drug, it produces a corresponding pattern of gene changes. Are there any drugs where the pattern of gene changes is the direct mirror opposite of what that particular disease produces? And if you marry the two up, you could therefore conclude that if the drug does the opposite of what the disease does, then maybe it will make the disease better. So they took as an example the disease ulcerative colitis, which is a kind of inflammatory bowel disease. It's quite common. Mm -hmm. And they then took a whole panel of drugs that had been studied, also looking at their genetic impact. And they found a drug uh, which is called topiramate. And topiramate is an anticonvulsant. It's used to treat epilepsy, and it's also used to treat some forms of um, depression. 
and its genetic impact is the direct mirror image of what ulcerative colitis does. And so it would appear to be a very good treatment for that condition. So they said, okay, let's mm -hmm. try it. So they took some rats, which had the rodent equivalent of ulcerative colitis, put them on this drug, and it performed as well at preventing and reducing the symptoms in these rats as the gold standard therapy we use in people at the moment, which is prednisolone, steroids. So it looks like this could be a really elegant and clever technique to turn old drugs into new drugs, if you like. Mm. In other words, to take things that are already licensed, they've already gone through medical approval, we know what their side effects are, we know how to use them safely, and to use them in a totally new context against old diseases for which we currently have no therapies. Much cheaper and much quicker to treat people that way than trying to invent new wheels, if you like, instead of just taking the ones that are already in circulation. Wow. All right, let's go straight to the lines, and we start with you, Nelson in Randburg. Good morning. Hi, Reedy. There's no nice way of asking her, but how much oh. can your boy, how much mucus can your body flip and produce? Nelson. Oh, I know, I know, but I mean, good grief, it just doesn't stop. And where does it come from? Where does it go? Ew. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Lovely question. Thank you. Good starter for ten. That's made everyone want to puke. I think. <laughs> um, mucus is made all over the body. Uh, not just where you'd think in your nose. It's actually made wherever you have respiratory epithelium, in other words, a respiratory surface. So your nose, your throat, your trachea, your bronchi, the tubes that go into your lungs, and then the bronchioles, the tubes that get right down into the bottom reaches of your lungs. All of these surfaces have tiny glands which produce mucus, and they produce the mucus by um, adding proteins, particularly a kind of protein called mucin, and that's why it's called mucus, because you have mucin in it. And mucin binds enormous amounts of water. So the cells secrete this mucin, and the mucin binds water from the surface and from the secretions of other glands, and it expands about a thousand times, swells up, and it makes this thick, sticky stuff. And the role of mucus is to trap dirt microorganisms, and it gets swept out of your lungs by tiny hairs called stereocilia, which are on the tops of little tiny cells called ciliated epithelial cells and these stereocilia are called stereocilia because they beat together in a wave-like pattern and this wafts the mucus along and drives it up out of the lungs to the back of your throat where you then cough and swallow it and that way you've got this sticky lining to your airways and as the air goes down the airways it's caused to swirl or spin and this flings out rather like a, a whirly dryer all of the particles that you don't want to get right into the bottom of the lungs and they get stuck to the mucus. You also make mucus deep down in your intestines, so down your esophagus into your intestines. There are glandular tissue, little um, goblet cells as they're called, and they also mm. squirt out mucus onto the lining of the intestine and this also contains mucin and its role there is to lubricate the path of food down through the intestines as it's digested and this makes sure that peristalsis, the process that propels food along, works efficiently and um, means that you don't get blocked up, basically. So you produce enormous amounts of mucus. I don't know the figure for the total volume you make every day, but you make enormous amounts of it. And you only have to look at someone who's got a problem with their mucus, either someone who's got a virus infection or someone who has the disease cystic fibrosis, where they make mucus that's too thick, to have some idea as to the potential volume that you can make because you can fill a pot with sputum or oh, Chris. with, with uh, cystic fibrosis, and they have to pat their chest with physiotherapy intensively Ooh. every day to get this stuff out, because otherwise they get very bad lung infections.
that picture that came to my mind, a pot full of mucus. Suddenly, I just want to take an ad break. Thanks for nothing, Nelson and Chris. Thank you. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. And we're taking your calls for Chris on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. Let's go to Dimitri in Sunning Hill. Hi. Hi. Good morning, Reedy, and good morning, Chris. My question is, um, Chris, what is going on in your brain right now neurologically? You're managing to synthesize so many different types of knowledge. I just wanted to know what is going on in that that brain of yours. Right. Can I I listen on the radio? (laughs) Hello, Dimitri. Um, Well, right now I'm sitting at a table actually on the phone today because I'm on clinical duty in about 20 minutes. Uh, at my local hospital where I work and so I'm thinking about what I'm going to be doing today and thinking about uh, how I'm going to answer all these questions and then how I'm going to make sure I get the news stories that we've been talking about onto our website nakedscientist.com slash news so that you can all read them uh, and then thinking about where I can read some more stuff so that I've got plenty of interesting things to say to everybody um I think the brain's an amazing thing, isn't it? It is. Absolutely it is. <laughs> All right. Here's an email here from Paul. Paul wants to know, uh, please ask the naked scientist why the buttocks are darker than the rest of the body, even in light-skinned people. I'm not sure. So it's, he says he's an athlete and has shared showers and locker rooms with other athletes, so the observation is well-informed. Mm. Better be careful not to get caught looking at people's bums. Though, <laughs> I know. That could have bad consequences. <laughs> Um, I don't know the answer. I'm not sure that um, I've noticed this myself, but then I don't spend a lot of time surveying bums. Um, maybe we should have a bit of a, uh, a sort of on-air survey. What do people think? Um, in, in, in the listener's experience, are bums darker than the rest of the body? Okay. Could it just be, could it be a hair-related phenomenon? Because bums are hairy, uh, in men at least, <laughs> hopefully just in men. And the hair will obviously make the skin underneath look a bit darker because the hair is going to be dark. Uh. So maybe it's a hair phenomenon. Maybe some ladies who've been covertly surveying other ladies' bums in changing rooms and things could tell us what their experiences are. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, the poll, the bum poll is now open. Let us know. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to Google in Lindbrook Park. Hi. Morning, guys. Oh, concerning the mucus, I just want to know, should I rush to my daughter to wipe it off whenever she's sucking hers, or is it okay? But the actual question that I wanted to ask is that, um, why is it whenever I laugh, I feel good, and whenever I cry, I feel better? You you feel better when you cry? I, let's say I've been, I, I'm stressed, and I'm overwhelmed, I'm upset, and I cry. I feel much better than before I cried, and... Before I laugh, I'm feeling good, but I feel better after I've laughed. Yeah. Well, let's look at the mucus one first, because that will make everyone feel bad, and then we can make Mm. them feel better with the answer to the next question. (laughs) Um, No, kids are notorious for having runny noses and what they call candlesticks, aren't they? Um, That stuff that's coming out of their nose is hooching with viruses. And if you touch that and then don't wash your hands well, then you will catch it. Um, The most common cause of upper respiratory infection is rhinovirus, and this is a tiny particle. It's only about one ten thousandth to one fifty thousandth of a millimeter across. Absolutely tiny, these particles. And kids will produce in, in every single milliliter of snot at least a million of them. 
um, probably more like 10 million. And they sit on surfaces, they sit on your skin, and they're really infectious. And they hang around for ages. They don't break down very fast. So if you touch them and then touch other surfaces, the viruses will be there. And then you will catch that cold if you're not careful. So yes, do wipe it off. But do wash your hands with soap after you've wiped it off because otherwise you will catch it because they're so infectious. Um, In terms of laughter and tears and things, well, we know that as Reader's Digest, the the global magazine empire used to say, laughter is the best medicine. medicine. Mm -hmm. There's really good evidence, actually, that humour has a very positive effect, not just on your psyche and making you feel better, but biochemically it has a positive effect as well because scientists have done studies where they've measured the strength of the immune system in people who have a a series of laughing episodes. So what you do is get people to watch a funny movie or something and you make various measurements on them, including the levels of antibody that they make and other antimicrobial factors that get produced in the body. And you find that people who have laughed compared with controls people who haven't been titillated in the same way, they have a a more robust immune response compared with the people who are miserable. And the converse to this is in people who are stressed and depressed, if you study how their immune system performs, it performs less well. And if you study how they respond to, say, vaccination, you find that they make far fewer antibodies when you vaccinate them than people who are happy on the whole. So depression has an impact on how your immune system works. So feeling bad not just impacts on your mood, but also impacts on your overall health. Um, In terms of crying, we know that crying is a a way of releasing tension and expressing your feelings. Mm -hmm. And we do it as humans, probably because we're very visually dominated in how we respond to the world, because more than a third of our brains is devoted just to seeing things. In other words, decoding what our eyes are feeding in. And so we've evolved a lot of signals that portray and betray our emotions and our feelings visually. And when people cry, you're releasing a lot of pent-up emotion, either because you're happy, very happy, and you're ecstatically happy, but usually because you're very sad about something. And what this normally does is encourage other people to react more sympathetically towards you, and it, and it encourages people to respond to you and support you and be kind to you and offer you some condolences or offer you some help. So it might be that part of it's the release of the tension because you've actually admitted, I feel bad and now I'm going to show it. But also there's a secondary effect, which is other people then feel compelled because they feel sorry for you to come and help you. Hmm. Okay, Gugu. We hope that there'll be many happy moments. I have an SMS question here, Chris. Oh, first let's go to Andrew because he's been holding on for a while. Hi, Andrew. Uh, hi, Reed. How are you? Fine, thanks, guys. Good, good. I just want to find out from the naked scientist. Uh, uh, the doctor diagnosed me with uh, a ticaria. Like what happens, uh, my body gets itchy, my face gets swollen up. And uh, 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 the doctor also said it's uh, stress-related, it's allergy. And then this started like three three months ago. So I had to stop uh, eating citrus fruits, fish, and uh, 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 a few other things. And I've been eating these things for, I mean, for things I can remember. So I just want to find out what causes that. Hello, Andrew. Um, and yes. I feel sorry for you because I, I've occasionally had this. And I've seen patients who would turn up to the hospital having previously never had it in their life, and then they suddenly develop these, what they call hives. So you'll get patches on your skin which swell up and are itchy, and then they're not just global all over the body. They'll be in certain patches on the body, and you're saying occasionally your face does it. And and you might get a rash as well, a slight red rash, and the skin on that bumpy bit of, of skin is very intensely itchy. And it usually is an allergy. It's caused by the chemical histamine being released in certain parts of the skin because you have in those bits of the body 
cells called mast cells, and mast cells contain histamine in them, and histamine winds up the immune system. It opens up blood vessels, it sensitizes nerve cells, and it encourages immune cells to come in to the particular region of the body where the histamine is being released. And it's there to act as an early warning system that you're under attack from a microorganism or a parasite. But occasionally it goes wrong and it gets produced in response to other things that it shouldn't be produced in response to. For instance, when you have hay fever or allergy to pollen, this is caused by mast cells pumping out histamine into tissues where the pollen is landing, usually eyes and nose and throat, for example. What causes urticaria with this systemic reaction is very variable and it can be a range of different things. Sometimes it can be things in contact with the skin, sometimes it can be allergens that you're actually eating, things that you consume that then go round your body and allergies can establish themselves at almost any time of life. Um, most of them obviously establish when we're little because that's when we try most new things but it's possible to establish new allergies later on in life and sometimes they're transient, in other words they come for a while, make life pain mm -hmm. and then they go away sometimes they become more entrenched. Um, I know that's not much reassurance to you, but the good news is taking some antihistamines could help to control it. These are drugs that block the action of histamine, and they're quite cheap, and there are lots of them around to choose from. Um, and if it's still very severe, then you can try a short course of something like prednisolone, a steroid, to damp down the immune system for a while, and hopefully this will reset things, and it won't come back. Mm, shame. Good luck to you, Andrew. Good luck. It sounds very, very uncomfortable. Well, we had a lot of health-related questions this week. Uh, Chris, thank you very much for answering them for us. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for having me, Reedy. Have a great weekend, everyone. I'll see you soon. Bye-bye, Naked Scientist. Bye-bye. And as always, the podcast will be available for you. Just some advice on the podcast. We find that people miss the shows and then they get in touch with us like a month later. Say, on the 4th of July, you had this show. We can't keep the podcast for that long. So if you know that you've missed a particular show that you'd have liked to listen to, perhaps go on the website on the day or the next day because the more podcasts we put, the more difficult it is to retrieve the old ones. They push each, other's, each other down as we load them onto the system and then Dean says please tell all these sick people to go and see their GP Chris is a scientist not a doctor get some science questions no Dean he's actually a medical doctor he works at a hospital as well and he love he loves answering people's health related questions why don't you call us with one of your own thinking about your next career move in research and development then it's time to make your move to the UK the nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.